Om Namo Narayanaya, welcome back. We're reading the Maha Upanishad. We're finishing up part 5 today, starting with verse 154. Let's just dive right in. Due to intensity of yearning in it, by meditating on a resplendent embodiment, the mind grows grosser as a bilva fruit does through the process of ripening. That effulgence in the sky, shining like liquid gold in a crucible, assumes a form with definite contours by virtue of its inherent nature. Upwards is the round head, downwards the feet, of the two sides of the hands, and in the middle what functions as a belly. In course of time, the body indwelt by the mind gets fully developed and becomes flawless. That same divine Brahman, the grandfather of the entire world, gets established in intelligence, purity, strength, energy, forms of knowledge, and lordship. Beholding his own attractive and preeminent body, the blessed Lord, the range of whose perception embraces all the three divisions of time, wondered what first would make its appearance in this supreme space, whose essence is pure spirit and whose limits are nowhere. Thus wondered Brahman, whose vision was as flawless as that of Shiva. In large groups, he behold bygone orders of cosmic manifestation. Next, he recollected them in all the due order of their attributes. Then sportively he fashioned by sheer imagination variegated living beings with their unique patterns of behavior, the whole constituting, as it were, a city in the sky. For securing their happy state as well as liberation, for attaining righteousness, love and wealth, he set up shastras, endless and varied. As the existence of the world has been set up by mind in the form of Brahman, it lasts only as long as Brahma. With his destruction, the world too perishes. Best of the Brahmins, in reality, nothing anywhere, at any time, is born or is destroyed. All that is seen is unreal, neither is nor is not. Give up the idle show of empirical life, a very pit of the serpents of cravings. Knowing this to be unreal, reduce them all to the status of their ground. Via V, the city in the sky, whether adorned or not, or the parts of its constitutive case, progeny, etc. What rationale is there for pleasures and pain? Sorrow, and not a sense of gratification, is in order as regards wealth and spouse in their nourishing state. Who can have a sense of reassurance here as the nescience of delusion gets more and more entrenched? Those very empirical experiences which in their abundance cause a fool to get attached to the world are the source, in the case of a wise man, of his dispassion. Therefore, with your awareness of truth, cultivate indifference to whatever has perished among the activities of empirical life and accept whatever offers itself. The marks of a man of discrimination are spontaneous indifference to experiences that do not come of their own accord and a hearty acceptance of those that do. Knowing and resorting to the untarnished middle status between the real and the unreal, neither cling to nor fly from the objective realm, external or internal. The intelligence of a wise and active man, free from attachment and aversion, remains untarnished like a lotus leaf, unmoistened by water. Ah, twice-born sage. If the glamour of objects charms not your heart, then having grasped what ought to be known, you have crossed the sea of empirical life. In order to win the preeminence that is separate, by means of supreme wisdom, the functioning mind from all latent impressions as one does a strong scent from a flower. The superior men of discrimination who board the ship of wisdom cross the sea of empirical life 
full of the waters of latent impressions. Those men who know this world as well as what is beyond conform to all things. They neither shun nor seek the ways of the world. The sprouting of mental construction consists in spirit's proneness to objects, to knowables. The spirit that is infinite, that is truth of the self, and that is the universal being. That very sprouting, having lightly come into being, gradually fills out, developing into the mind. Then it promotes inertness like a cloud. Imagining objects as other than the self, as it were, the spirit is transformed into a constructive process, as it were, just as a seed is into a sprout. Mental construction is indeed the process of putting together of constituents. It comes automatically into being, and waxes fast in the pain, never unto delight. Indulge not in mental construction, in a state of stability. Dwell not on positive Excuse me. Dwell not on positive existence. Persevere in stopping mental construction. Thus one never again pursues the trail of construction. By the mere absence of imagination, the process of mental construction dwindles automatically. One act of construction leads to another. Mind battens on itself, O oh, sage. Mm -hmm. Gaining off construction abide in the self. Once this is done, what can prove difficult? Just as the sky is empty, so is the entire cosmos. Ah, uh, wise Brahmin, just as a paddy husk or the black coating on copper through effort is destroyed, so also may the mental impurities of man. As a grain of paddy, the innate impurity of a jiva too can be destroyed in ample measure. There is no doubt in that. Therefore, strive. Thus ends part five. Maya, Maya, Maya. All the world is illusion. Uh, that's, that's the great teaching of this Upanishad, certainly this part. It's such an interesting thing because this is teaching to not be attached to the world, to not, you know, to not see the opposites and become cling, clung onto them and stuck onto them and, you know, um, to not invest your life in these things because they bring misery. Yet I think there's a criticism often of Hinduism that this creates a sense of aloofness and a sense of just not caring. Because if everything's opposite, then I don't care. And that then leads into like a history of India and a history of uh, whatever that I don't want to get into. Uh, and I think there's some validity there. I think there is some sense of, you know, we don't want to cling to these things that bring misery, but by not clinging to them, do we just stop caring about people. And I think Hinduism hasn't necessarily solved that problem, I'm going to be honest. I look at India, I look at the treatment of untouchables or whatever, um, yeah, I don't care about those people, and it's just opposites, it's just Maya. But that's actually perpetuating suffering, and those people could achieve enlightenment, but they're stuck in their suffering, and you're not helping them. It is a problem with Hinduism, this inherent pulling back. Then you have the other end of the pendulum with like Christianity, where we should set up soup kitchens and we should set up hospitals. Historical fact, it's actually the Christians, they did a lot of bad things as missionaries in India. I absolutely hate the history and uh, it frustrates me to no end. But they did bring hospitals, they did build hospitals and things to help people that the Indians weren't doing. 
So there's that. And not that hospitals in the 1800s were that great, but they were doing thing. There is something in the Christian thing of helping your fellow man that I don't read here. And, and I think that is a big drawback with Hinduism. It, it, lacks, it lacks that caring for your fellow man, even if it inhibits your own enlightenment. Maybe not. Maybe it's just this Upanishad. I, I don't believe... I don't believe Hinduism is that careless. I just believe it, it changes the focus, whereas in Christianity it is all about helping, and there's no sense of enlightenment. You, you achieve no God consciousness or Jesus Christ consciousness or any of that. That doesn't exist. Whatever terms are like that out there, they're not real terms. It clearly says in the Bible, your relationship to Jesus is not a, a, a nirvana, like in Hinduism. So, you come to Jesus by good acts and by doing good things. And Hinduism doesn't have that. It doesn't have that. And Christianity doesn't see the world as Maya as an illusion either. This is all very real. So, they focus on, you know, do good stuff, but they don't have the outcome that we in Hinduism have. It's a completely different outcome, completely different relationship to God. So, it's an interesting thing. I don't know. Um, like I said, I don't believe Hinduism is really careless at its soul. I don't believe Krishna went, nah, whatever. Just just achieve enlightenment and don't see the Maya. I believe there's more than that. I believe it's very caring. Um, uh, actually, I'm thinking of the, the Ramayana, actually, and Hanuman, and, and King Rama. I believe he was a very caring king. And I believe Hanuman was very devoted. So I think that it's here. Um, it's just that the focus is off, and so it doesn't come to the fore. I might be wrong. Maybe maybe Hinduism is all about separating yourself from the world and going, yeah, whatever. It, you deal with it, and you deal with it. But I, I don't know. Anyways, it's my thought that came to this. Half of what I just said is probably right. Half of it's probably wrong. And... Well, you can't have another half, but probably bits and pieces of those half is incredibly controversial. <laughs> so, please feel free to chime in. Um, this is just, you know, off the cuff, starting a conversation. Please pick that conversation up. And if I'm wrong, then, well, you can't fault me for being an optimist. <laughs> and if I'm right, please tell me a source. So, give me some sources of where Hinduism does recommend caring for your fellow man. Alright, with that being said, I'll stop now before I get into trouble. And in the next video, we'll pick up with part six. Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Harry Harry, Harry Rama, Harry Rama, Rama Rama, Harry.